there is this formula when you talk to venture capital that they have in mind of within a certain time, you must have hit these milestones. They don't necessarily take into consideration the needs of pivots due to technological changes. The vulnerabilities that you've just explained, and thank you for being open enough to do so, means to me through the lens that our investment committee would look at you, would make you more of an investable founder than somebody who's going at this first time claiming to have everything right. I think one of the, the key things is everything is around success, success, success straight away. And if you listen to any successful founder, they will tell you that, that success came after a number of essentially failures, right? Opportunities to pivot. And what you have shown is the resilience to be able to go through those pivots. Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impi. In today's episode, I speak with Ali Karimi of Mayfair Technology Partners, a venture studio based in London. We focus mostly on mental health and the challenges that startup founders face on their journey. Building a startup is extremely difficult. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things that you can ever do, and it can really take a toll on your mental health. I found this conversation to be super helpful to me as a founder, and I hope you do too. So Ali, uh, we had initially a conversation about you coming on onto the platform and talking to uh, various startup founders and some of the um, different kind of challenges that we face at, as, as founders. And then the conversation was so interesting that I thought to get you on the podcast and to, to talk about some of these as well. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, you know your background? And then we will take it from there. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, and secondly, uh, my name is Ali Karimi. I'm the founder of uh, what we call a venture studio uh, called Mayfair Technology Partners. Um, and we kind of operate at the intersection between uh, venture capital and early stage business. So back in kind of 2017, 2018, myself and a partner of mine, William Stadlin, were investing in early stage business. Um, all digitally enabled businesses. And one thing that we found was there's a large disconnect specifically between non-tech founders around the creation of digital infrastructure. Um, and most of that was, was, was typically offshored. Um, in those days, we were using India um, as, as a market to offshore. What we found is there was a disconnect between what founders would uh, articulate or explain that they wanted to, to create or deliver and what was actually delivered by the software houses they were outsourcing to. Not, not to say that there was a blame particularly on either side. We've got the process. It just in itself needed to be kind of re-looked at. So what we did is we spent the next kind of few years acquiring a, a software development company, bringing that whole process in-house um, and basically having more control over the delivery and the development of digital infrastructure for early stage businesses. Uh, so now MTP, we have uh, set up in 2020. We have a portfolio of around 15 companies. These are from concept that uh, an incubated to early stage to established businesses that have undergone a digital transformation. And as a kind of venture studio, we offer uh, as best we can a full suite of services from concept validation and business planning, investment, uh, preparation, whether that's our own investment or sourcing third-party capital. And then once that capital has been deployed, we then go along the journey with the businesses as their digital partner 
to build and develop their infrastructure and help them kind of launch, scale and grow from there. That's really cool. So this concept of venture studio is quite new to me. Um, I didn't know anything about it until recently. And now uh, I've, I've recently met quite a few uh, venture studios and it sort of makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm thinking more that that might be a, a right direction for us as well, because, you know, as a sole founder, it's something that um, if you don't have, you know, a technical co-founder, this could be a, an option. Um, is this a new concept or has it been around for a while? Uh, to my mind, I guess, I mean, we, we when we looked at this back in 2017, 2018, most of the relationships were kind of agency-based relationships. So they were kind of a, you know, yes, you can outsource to a partner, but it was still a, a you or a we conversation. The whole idea of a venture studio is it the conversation about you or I is, is irrelevant. It's about us, the collective working together. Um, and what we do, we, we changed our model slightly. So we take, uh, we invest in those companies through um, what we call match funding in our services. So non-cash investments, but an investment through technical services that we put into the company. Therefore, we're on the cap table and we've got a vested interest in the in the future of the business. So to go back to your um, question, is it a new, I'm not entirely sure I'm with you. Like there's been a lot of, chatter on, on on social channels and uh, conferences and events about venture studio i think people are still trying to figure out what it is but for us essentially the the, the model is no different than we want to be as closely aligned to an in-house development team as we can but we're just having the, the ability to kind of scale up and down as you need to no super interesting so obviously you're you're going to be doing a session on the platform separately um, but today, what we wanted to talk about was more on on the mental health side of things uh, for for founders. And uh, as we talked about in the beginning, before I press record, I'm actually this is very apt because I'm actually having a little bit of a moment myself. So, um, so uh, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about you know, my background and, and like the, the specific challenge that I'm facing right now. And I'm very candid about these things because um, this podcast gets recorded. A lot of other founders listen to it and I'm sure that they will also, it, this will resonate with. Basically, uh, we have had to go through a few pivots to find the, the exact product market fit. Um, in the beginning, so the, the idea has always been, we want to build this platform for other, you know, B2B or, or, or in general, other creators to use it to create communities. And the difference between what we are building with existing things like Kajabi or, you know, all sorts of other types of community building platforms uh, is that our goal is eventually for this to become an, a new social network uh, or, or a, a, you know, um, a professional network. So you can think of it as an improved version of, uh, LinkedIn um, meets Masterclass meets Discord. So, so you have the community building aspect, you have the um, uh, content management aspect because LinkedIn, when, when LinkedIn was created, it was not built for content. It was supposed to be a place for people to put their um, CVs on, right? So it was not, yeah. it was never meant to be a content management system. Um, and uh, the, the problem is that things have evolved and the needs of the current creators and the companies that are building communities, it, it, those needs have changed a lot. And none of the 
existing platforms really are suitable for that. Uh, so basically what we have learned is that Yes, content is king. You know, content is the way to build your community. It's the way to build that initial touch point, you know, build an audience and then and then turn your audience into a community. And I always say there's difference between an audience and a community. The audience is um, people who, is, who are on uh, social media. You don't have their details. You know, they're like your uh, first level touch point. And then communities, once you've got the, your, their detail, you know, you've got that open dialogue with them. So... Uh, you know, I, I've been always wanting to build this new kind of next generation of social network that is focused on community building. Um, we've had to go through a few different pr uh, product market fit testing. The difference between what we are building with uh, kind of replicating the exacting um, networks is that when you're building something new, you have to do a lot more product market fit test until you you find um, the exact model that works. So uh, we started out with women because we thought that that could be a good point to, to try and build an initial community. We found that that was too small. There were not enough women who were building companies. So we expanded from there to Web3 because Web3 was at the time quite hot and it seemed like this was going to be the next, you know, and Web3 equates, you know, community building in many ways. It just seemed like the perfect product market fit. Um, however, that didn't last long enough. So and now Web3 has become essentially almost like a swear word. You know, like I, I was at a conference now uh, that I just came back from in LA and it's like mention of Web3 almost gets a violent reaction of, no, 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 I don't want to go anywhere near that. So, um, so we've had to pivot from that. And now we're building this new uh, community of uh, startup founders and uh, NBCs. And, you know, this is the third iteration in terms of, uh, you know, the third try. The foundation of the platform is the same. We've built a lot of technology. We've built really, really cool Web3 technology that can't be used right now. We've shelved it, you know, with token gating and, and wallet gating and all that stuff. So now we are, we are, we've just started email gating. We've created a whole new system of email gating. Um, and basically all of the things that we could see could be like the next innovation in Web3 um, in terms of building a digital identity, a layer of digital identity, we can't use that now because people are not interested in Web3. So we are having to rebuild all of that. So as you can imagine, that's very tough, uh, you know, as a founder, having to deal with that, um, being a sole founder as well, you know, that's like another level of like everything is on you. There's no nobody to um, kind of, uh, you know, bounce back ideas, right? And um and also in terms of monetization, the uh, in Web3, there was a different kind of uh, focus, you know, monetization, as we know, monetization model in Web3 is not very well defined yet. It's something that is, you know, being being worked on through tokenomics, etc. So so we've had to uh, pause monetization. We did some monetization in Web3, but we have had to pause it and rebuild a whole new business model. Um, and there is this formula that when you talk to a venture capital, you know, there is this formula that they have in mind of within a certain time, you must have had certain things and you must have hit these milestones. But those 
um, they don't necessarily take into consideration uh, the needs of pivot due to technology technological changes. So yeah, so it's a tough spot. Um, yeah. So any thoughts on? <laughs> well, look, there's there's a few different things to unpick there, but I think the one thing, and and I, I think I explained to you when we first had our call and why we why we're kind of leaning toward the topic of mental health is a lot of my time is spent with our portfolio founders and actually just talking to them on a human to human level, uh, you know, de facto therapy, if you'd like to call it that. Uh, it's part of the reason actually we moved out to Southwest London, other than, than our UK team is based here. We are in Wimbledon Village, which has a lovely common across the road. And most of the time I take our founders across the road and we just walk for maybe a couple of hours um, out in nature and try to be inspired by the ideas that come to us. Uh, rather than, than than forcing an answer through, um, but but to answer your kind of question more specifically, I guess look the the, the vulnerabilities that you've just explained, and thank you for, for being open enough to do so, um, means to me through the lens that our investment committee would look at you would make you more of an apt or more of an investable founder than somebody who's going at this first time claiming to have everything right. I think one of the the key things, and you you touched on LinkedIn, and it's part of my kind of frustration with the platform is everything is around success 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 straight away and if you listen to any successful founder long in the tooth enough to be worth their soul they will tell you that their success came after a number of essentially failures right opportunities to pivot and what you have shown is the the nows to be able to pivot but you've also shown a resilience to be able to go through those pivots right i, I think for me I, I, you know if you have enough determination to make something succeed, um, then then you will be able to through the nature of pivoting and through the nature of going and finding as you articulated your product market fit. But what I find is that a lot of early stage founders um, particularly lose appetite because in their first, let's say, failure or their first thing that wasn't as successful as they envisaged, they don't have the determination or the willpower, the strength to persevere and say, okay, this wasn't right, the elements of it were right, and actually let me pivot and, and, and try and do something else. And one of the things, again, I should struggle with with LinkedIn is, is, the, is the fact that um, everything's about a success story. Everything's about how great everything was. And occasionally you do get some vulnerability stories on there. But, you know, for me, again, you are having gone through those pivots, having gone through things that you thought were going to succeed and haven't, are now a more credible founder because the next time you go out something you'll take into consideration all of your past experiences which make you stronger and more resilient for, for the future moving forward so look i don't think there's a kind of one size fits all approach but one thing that i do and you know this is somebody who runs a digital venture studio but from a non-technical background we've just spent 10 minutes you teaching me how to how to kind of use my camera um properly um is that technology great but but you have to also remember behind the technology is a human right and that no matter how advanced our technology gets and part of the reason we haven't jumped into web3 just yet is because i fully believe in the uh, adoption and the possibilities that are associated with web uh, blockchain technology i'm completely bought in but you also have people in our local communities in london who barely have access to kind of high-speed broadband and internet. So you have to, you have to, you have to kind of marry up this situation where we have these technologies, but actually is society ready to adopt them yet? Is the human on the other side ready to embrace them yet? Um, and if they're not, that's absolutely okay. And maybe we should just 
in fact, pare down our expectations a little bit and say, okay, what can we work with right now? And so still to this day, most of our ventures that we invest in are through traditional Web2 technologies, you know, mobile apps and e-commerce platforms and, you know, B2B SaaS solutions, whatever they may be, uh, because people are comfortable with and know how to use them. At the point in which we can integrate and we can kind of pivot towards Web3, we'll absolutely do that, but we won't do it until the human element on either side is ready for us to do so. That's right. I think one of the biggest problems with Web3 is is this level of complexity. I always say Web3 has got three big problems. It's too complex. There's regulatory, um, uh, you know, there isn't regulatory uh, clarity and uh, the speculation aspect, you know, because unfortunately, because of its hyper-financialization, people um, focus on, on the wrong areas. So tell me a little bit more about you know, when you talk to the founders um, that that you work with, how do you get them to control their nerves as they're going through these tough tough times? Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a really good friend of mine um, that I'm going to actually get on on the podcast. She's written a book um, published by Penguin called The Shed Method, and she talks to a lot of, um, she works basically with executive coaches. And one of the reasons why I haven't talked to her enough uh, recently is that I feel like she may not necessarily um, uh, know the the technical aspect of what I'm dealing with. So I think I find it really helpful talking to, um, you know, to if, if I say I had to pivot from this to this to this, and I'm having this issue with product market fit, and, and now we are trying these things. I think for somebody who has built businesses or is in the venture space would understand that better. Um, but I know that there are also some principles in how, for example, somebody like my friend Sarah Monroe will talk about in, in terms of how you hold your nerve, how, how you, you know, how you um, sort of get through that. Um, but I'd like to hear from you because I am going to have Sarah on the pod as well and, and kind of like get that comparison between uh, a professional coach that uh, that tells you, you know, this is how you can deal with situations as opposed to somebody who has literally just gone through that themselves. Yeah, no, the, the, the truth is there's no one size fits all approach, right? We're all different. We all respond differently to different techniques. And, you know, far be it for me to be an expert. But I I, I try and just break down the person on a, on a human level. So as I said, the very first thing is, is changing our environment, right? So those kind of conversations where you're having difficulties whatever it may be or for me they're not best served being discussed in an office or professional environment so let's get outside first of all right let's get out of our heads and enjoy nature or wherever it may be a coffee shop somewhere that, that that you don't feel the weight of expectation of an office on you and then secondly what I try and do because I realize that depending on the nature of the conversation it can be quite intimidating for somebody to open up and be vulnerable to me uh, given a position as you know a partner a CEO of a venture studio who is investing in them I will I will be often the first one to talk about my vulnerabilities or my challenges um, in that week and ask them to help me or suggest a solution um, in the same way you've done with me here and I think that that automatically kind of uh, alleviates any kind of pressure or any kind of intimidation of people feeling on the other side. And it just brings us back down to, I keep saying that human to human level, which we all are. Uh, And once we can engage in that conversation, I think, you know, there are a number of ways in which you can look at the problem at hand and say, okay, well, 
is you know, and, and again, the language you use around it, a problem, a a failure. These are all negative connotation words, right? Where, where they, they they shouldn't be there. Okay, you know, imagine we were to celebrate the fact that you're on your third or fourth pivot, as opposed to you know the, the negative connotation around it. Um, imagine we were to celebrate the fact that you've tried something and it's not gone as right as you were, but you've had the resilience to stay through. Um, I think I try and do that as much as I can possibly because you know when we when we when we triage or when we run through our kind of methodology for investing in early stage businesses. The truth is at that stage of a business's kind of embryonic life, the concept, the financial modeling, the plans, yes, they're important, but they're all irrelevant, right? The, the, real, the most important thing is the founder or the founding group, because they're the ones who are gonna be able to drive this business and move it forward. And so that's why I say that's the most important touch point for us. And if you can understand what drives, what motivates them, what provides them with anxiety, I mean, fear and anxiety, are absolutely fine in this environment, provided you do not let them consume you. And so, you know, sometimes I say to some of my staff here, like I, I will quite often, and I'm known for this, is throwing them in to a task which they've never undertaken before. And I, I enjoy watching the immediate reaction, which is, oh my God, I can't do this. What have you asked me to do? And I said two things. Look, one, I would never ask you to do something which I have not done and experienced myself, so I can't coach you through it. And two, I would also never ask you to do something which I don't feel you've got the skills or capabilities to do. So look at the challenge. I embrace the challenge that I've given to you. Right? Look at it as a, a positive that somebody's giving you this challenge because they believe in your ability to be able to do it. And then look at the challenge, again, embrace it and look at the challenge through the lens of, I'm going to conquer this. I'm, go I'm going to get over it. doesn't matter if it takes me one time or three times or two times. I mean, you know, uh, I was speaking to, I have a young niece and she's going to her driving test and she was worried about failing first time. And I said to her, well, like, you know, how many people do you know when you speak to them and you ask them if they have their driving license, do you ask how many times did you take your test? Like it's irrelevant, provided you get your license, you can drive at the end of the day. That's all that matters. So I think just just breaking down the problem, embracing it in a whole different light, changing your environments, um, all important things to be able to get people down on a human to human level. And you know, I think just removing preconceptions of what society or what business environments tell us are success or non-success. And that's why one of the first things we do with our founders as part of a 100-day plan when we bring them on is, is align expectations. What is your definition of success? Because it may be super different to my definition of success, and that's okay, but we should have that open and honest conversation. And then you know, you're much more able to kind of measure yourself against what your definition of success is rather than defining yourself by somebody else's definition of success or by a fear of failure that you don't even know what it means to you or what it doesn't mean to you that's right so now when you talk about uh, the definition of success is there is there like um, a template or a blueprint that you would use when you are talking about what uh, how somebody should um, think about success because there is a, a specific definition of, definition of success from the viewpoint of venture capital and what what is expected of you to achieve within a certain time um, and then there is the other side of it is like you as a person, what, how you define success. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and how you think these two things could um, uh, uh, could align in, in some way. Yeah, look, I mean, look, here's the thing about venture capital. I've been working in and around venture capital for the last 10 years, and it's obviously 
it's it, you know it's had a tough time over the last two or three years. Um, naturally, you know, industries ebb and flow, but you know, predicated at the heart of the venture capital model is failure, right? Because venture capital a model will, will, for every ten investments, for example, it's high, it's very well, and not for every VC. I take this on on board, but for many that I work with, it's, it's well understood internally that ten investments, eight will 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 fail, and if you have two that succeed, then by those metrics, you're doing relatively well. And obviously, the returns on the two that succeed will supersede the loss on the eight. So they're not going into this saying, we're going to make 10 investments and we are going to succeed in every one of these investments. Yes, they did their due diligence. In the past, it was probably far too light. So now it's now it's probably on the other end of the spectrum. But you know, at the heart of their model is predicated on, on failure. They are not expecting everything to succeed, right? And um, you know, we, we look at this idea of building unicorns or or, or building these business. But, you know, unicorns are unicorns for a reason. They're, they're very, very few and far between. Um, but, but what I would ask people to do is, is, is any founder of a unicorn, look behind the facade of the business and just look at what they have had to sacrifice to get there and say to yourself, okay, if I did build a unicorn, would I want to sacrifice what they have sacrificed to better get there? The answer for me in many instances, having read books for founders who've done this is no, like, you know, I wouldn't want to sacrifice. Right? For me, going back to your measure of success, families is super important, right? I have a young child, I have a wife at home. Like, I, I love and want to spend time investing into them. So that to me is, is, is part of my success. Um, again, I, I took a long time kind of, I come from a commercial background, right? So, you know, glorified salesman, if you will, we were we were hit with kind of commercial targets and our, our only way of kind of uh, attributing our success or measuring our success was against commercial targets. And if you exceeded those, great. And if you didn't, then you weren't doing your job properly. But it's a very kind of harsh metric to be able to measure success by. Um, so, you know, for me, when I dug down and, 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 I, and I took some time out of my career to really review this, actually, for me, what I get validation from personally is helping others to achieve their potential and succeed. And at the heart of our venture studio is exactly that. We provide a supportive network, a framework around um, founders, be it early stage or later stage, with the idea of sharing in their success and helping them succeed and and that's the bit i get validation from yes of course we're all interested in uh, financial stability and and success on a financial scale to some description but you know been in lots of positions probably before i've had that and i've not felt any any better um than i have for example moving the needle with a very small company from zero to 100 percent has made me feel better than you know a six or seven or eight bigger deal that we've done in some instances. So uh, for me personally, it's it's that. And actually, when I when I meet with my, my with the founders, and one of the things we go through is asking them what validates them and what makes them feel a measure of success. And when it comes to financial uh, success, and, and again, I've got no no version to it at all. One thing I advise to everybody that I speak to is okay if you if if, if finance. Is is a uh, data point upon which you measure your success. That's absolutely fine, but please have a definition, have a number, have something to that. If you say to me something tomorrow, Ali, I want to earn five million pounds because I want to go and buy this yacht and this Bentley, and it's going to cost me exactly this. I have no issue with that at all because you know exactly what you want, and more importantly, you know why you want it. So once you hit that five million, you can check out, you can do what you want to do, and you can go and buy the two things that you make you happy. But I also feel in life there's this cyclical nature of wanting to accumulate wealth or accumulate finance without understanding why you want to do it. 
And then you get to a point where you've done that and then you realize actually, was that the most important thing in my life? Was that the most important thing I should have focused on throughout the last 10, 15, 20 years of my career? For some perhaps yes and some perhaps not. So uh, unpicking exactly what it is that validates people and most importantly, unpicking their motivation, their, their why. I've got a saying in, in, in the company that I, I say to everybody, it frustrates them, but I say to them, look, if you don't know why you're doing a task, stop and find out first, because you will never be able to do that task to your full potential unless you know why you're doing it. Very, uh, very interesting. Does the why matter? So when you talk to founders and, and once you find out their why, um, do you judge them based on their why, would you say? Are there some whys that are more powerful than other whys? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I possibly I'd like to say no, but I'm human at the same time. So probably likeliness is yes, I do, I do judge them. Um, and, you know, I've also got to pare down there. You know, I, I kind of have a very social and, and philanthropic approach to a lot of things. So if somebody comes to me with a, a charitable objective or a business that they want to do, which helps and sees good in people. I'm naturally more inclined to sway in that direction. And my investment committee will pare me back down and be like, Ali, we know this is this is great and you want to do this. But, you know, the one most important currency that we have as a venture studio and as early stage founders is time. And you can only spread your time as much as you can and you can only spread your bandwidth as much as you can. So even if, if somebody says, if you say to me something like, I've got this idea and I resonate with it and I resonate with it too, it might not be necessarily the best thing for our business at that particular time. So I try and look at your objective or your why as agnostically as possible and I will match it with the fit and the culture of our venture studio and see, look, are we the right people for you? Look, investment in any way is a two-way process. And I think in the early stage founders community or even late stage founders, we forget that we are chasing capital or chasing investment through an equity-based investment model, which by the way, is giving up most of your upside, right? Most of your hard work and the value creation, you're giving away an equity of that company, often at a far too cheap rate. And you're doing it because the cash injection that comes into your company, you believe will accelerate your growth. Um, and that's absolutely fine, but it's not always the right way um, for, for, for most people. So I always say investment partnership of anything should be a two-way process. And as much as I am looking at you through the lens of, are you the right fit for our company? Is your motivation, is your purpose the right fit for our company? You as a founder should be doing the same with us as, or an investor or anybody you're speaking to. Um, because, you know, partnerships are, are, are typically long-term. And, you know, I, I'm touch wood to this day have never been someone who's had to go back to contractual obligations to unpick but oh, this is our responsibility or this is your responsibility i've always had relationships with our founder community where i can pick up a phone or go and meet with Brooke coffee or take them for a walk as i've said and, and and hash out a kind of disagreement or a confrontation whatever it may be person to person um, so I think that's where I, I look at it and it's funny one thing i say to some of our analysts when they're doing their due diligence is that try and put this person or the founder under pressure during your negotiation status. And why I say that is not because I want to create confrontation or to create argument, but actually 
at that moment when they're under pressure, you really find out their motivations and you really find out how they will deal with situations. And I can tell you from having been in, in, in this game for a while that you are going to come under situations very quickly where you're going to come under pressure. And when you come under pressure, it's quite easy to look around at your colleagues, your partners and start apportioning blame or start looking for reasons and whatever it is. So I said, look, let's try and get to that scenario before we do a deal with somebody to try and find out that how is this going to work and, and, and how is it going to be and then we can see that can we move past or or is this a situation where every time something goes wrong it's going to blow up and create a whole lot of kind of drama that that's not conducive to both parties yeah definitely Uh, that's uh how people react under pressure and and are able to maintain a positive conversation it really is telling on how you know how they will be able to deal with things as things uh evolve because Things never get less complicated. They will always get more complicated. And there will be, you know, you're, you're Persian, right? Like, in, in, do, you no. speak, do you speak Persian? No, no, this is oh, okay. my dad's family of Parsi. We have, a saying, we have a saying in Persian, uh, which means the bigger your, um, your roof, the more uh, snow you accumulate. So, yeah. so it's kind of like, you know, that as the business becomes more complex, you deal with a lot more complex issues. Um, you mentioned about the the last few years uh, being particularly difficult in uh, the venture. Uh, I just made a note here to, to make sure I asked this uh, in the venture business. Um, can you explain a little bit from your point of view where you stand what um, caused that? And, you know, I mean, 2021 seemed like it was the boom for um, from, from many types of business and not just Web3, for many things. And obviously right now, there's a lot of excitement around AI, but the kind of that sense of bubbleness it doesn't exist the way that it was. So um, other than the interest rates, like what are some of the other or even with interest rates, you can you can dive a bit deeper into that. But why do you think all of a sudden there's been this massive shift in the venture business? Um, look, if I simplify it as much as possible, it was that the model for VC of the, the let's say pre twenty twenty one, which is when things shifted. Obviously, you had socioeconomic factors, pandemic and uh, and the Russia-Ukraine situation, which didn't help. But essentially, you know, you know, and, and having having kind of worked with VC and having secured investment for a lot of early stage businesses through VC, um, I have to say, in my experience, not all the time, but a lot of time, kind of there was a bit of a land grab and valuations were were kind of you know, plucked out of thin air. There wasn't a lot of metric behind them. Expectations from VC around what these early stage founders were going to do was 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 sometimes disengaged between what what they expected, what the founders expected, and so you know, money. Obviously, interest rates as well made money easily and readily available. Um, it just meant that VC were were kind of throwing money at things without, I don't think, properly understanding their why uh, of why they were doing it. You know, I can't imagine the times and. Quite name them, but I've been contacted by a VC saying, "Look, have you got any SEIS tickets left? Don't care about the thesis, about the concept of the business. We just, we just want to deploy this capital and try and and, and try and take down some of more of our our tax efficiency on it. And the same for angels and so on and so forth. And I think at that time, and I would say specifically, kind of early pandemic, 
you know, what you did get, especially with some of the smaller VC ones, when they were competing with high net worth and angels for investment tickets in early stage businesses. So actually what you had is a, a supply and demand issue where you had a shortage of credible businesses coming through triage and a load of cash um, that was being thrown at them trying to fight for, for equity in those businesses. And so, you know, VC, like any good business, has had to do what you've done is pivot and tighten up its model because you know, the cash is not so readily available anymore. And, um, well, maybe not so readily available is the wrong word, but it's just it's being deployed much more strategically and they are thinking about them. But also you've got this now second wave where there were businesses that were invested in in kind of, let's say, 2015 to 2020 who are gone through their own struggles and VCs are having to discover, do we double down on them and put some of our investment capital in there? versus how much do we go after new businesses and new opportunities. And so that pool of money, what I'm, what I'm trying to articulate is that more and more people are, are, are going at it. But one thing I say to our, our founding community at the moment is that don't let that kind of put you off fundraising. Um, first of all, find out, is, is an equity fundraise the right model for you? Right? Debt financing is difficult in this market, particularly for early stage, because interest rates are high and at concept concept kind of stage are you going to be able to do that but there are other financing models available there are different ways of getting cash you know we're all we we kind of advocate sustainable growth and development here so bootstrapping for as long as you can holding on to the value and you know one of the things that I kind of alluded to earlier is equity is the most expensive form of investment if you are planning and you're going to follow through with the expectations that you have as a business giving away equity at a lower valuation at an early stage of your business, yes, may help and accelerate growth. But, you know, trust me, further down the line, I've seen enough founders who've had to dilute and dilute and dilute and say, look, I've spent 15 years building this business, or 18 years. I'm about to exit for a significant multiple, but I, I retain a very low interest in the business anymore on the cap table. And I'm also not really in control of where I am. So it's something that you've got to think about and finding the right VC is super important. But I think, you know, one of one of the metrics I would say is when you're speaking to VC, again, the interview process, make sure it's two-way, but also you like you'll see we 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 just did a round recently and a VC came back to us with questions and it was all about revenue multiples and EBITDA, which is fine. We can answer those questions all based on projection. But I said to the founder, look, if that's the very first question they're asking you, as opposed to your purpose, your culture, your, are they are they the right country culturally aligned investor for you? Because as soon as they take you take their capital, it's not smooth sailing. You know, you're going to have to be producing reports to these guys. You're going to have to be kind of Make, keeping them up to date on what you're doing and you're going to have to be validating some of your business decisions as to why you're making these decisions and, and, and why you're going and if you don't have that cultural fit between your two organizations it's going to create a kind of really tense working environment um so so that's part of my reason i think that the vc is that look, they just had to tighten their belts i think it's not the same economy as it was pre kind of pandemic time uh, you know, uh, and that capital is having to be stretched much further amongst existing portfolio and new investment opportunities. Yeah, I find these conversations super helpful, uh, you know, and I'm really hoping that other startup founders listening to this also take some learning away from this. Um, I guess one last question for today is um, a little bit about location. Um, you You mentioned a lot about, you know, people that are around you and, and there has to be a two-way conversation between the VCs and startups. How important is it to be 
in the right location. So uh, as I just came back from LA, quite a number of people have been telling me that you really need to be in San Francisco. Like, you know, that, that uh, there is a, a completely different environment there and um, the speed of things, the, the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, mentorship that you get. Um, and I have to say that um, maybe, maybe I haven't put as much effort into discovering the London scene. Um, uh, maybe there is a bigger uh, scene here and, I, and I'm going to make a, an effort to uh, really get to know more of the London startup scene. Um, but I do seem to find there's a lot more going on in the US, um, especially in New York. And, and But yeah, what are your thoughts on, on the importance of location? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, again, location goes back to the person um, and where you feel comfortable, where you feel a fit. I think there are, you, you, can, you can, you know, you can find a community, you can find support, you can find financing options wherever you go in most parts of the world, right? But it's about how it makes you feel connecting with that community specifically. Um, look, San Francisco and the West Coast is obviously a, a, a stalwart for innovation, for venture capital, for startups and for digital kind of business and scaling from that side but you know from from my perspective I think we spoke last time a lot of my work is kind of shifting towards the east at the moment in time uh Gulf states Saudi Arabia Middle East we have an office in Dubai um and so there's a big connect there so I think I think I, I absolutely agree I think networking and finding your kind of community is so important and doing it face to face um, look, it's it's not it's not too dissimilar to to, to dating, right? To find your your partner in, in in life in some capacity, you've got to get out there and as much as you can be on social networks, and you can be that actually meeting someone face to face in by chance or a conference or an event or whatever it is may spark conversations. You know, hands up. Admittedly, it's not something I have as much time to do anymore, and I really regret that. It's actually stuff I'm finding in my diary to be able to do it, to go out and meet and have conversations on the off chance with people, because that's how you resonate and that's how you build your communities. But I think location depends on what you are looking for and and, and where you feel most comfortable and at home. And I think, yeah, that could be different for, for different people. Um, you know, we have a, uh, our, our development hub is in, is in Pakistan, in South Asia, in Lahore. And, you know, traditionally it's a developing country, right? It's, it's, um, yeah, essentially, it's a developing economy. Uh, you have other reason to be on it, but but you would. I hadn't visited for a long time, and I visit our staff regularly there. And one of the things I'm shocked by is the amount of personal private wealth in Pakistan at this moment in time. It's absolutely outrageous. So you know, we have I have conversations with business people all the time out there who are saying, look, what can we invest in? Like we are cash rich, and and would you before this have said to me, should I go to Pakistan to source investment for for my for my business opportunity, perhaps not, right? So so I think no matter where in the world you go to, you'll be able to do that. But it's about, I think most important is, is you looking at personally where you feel comfortable, where you feel where you feel there's a right fit. And then your narrative, I think that's the most important thing is are you able to articulate what you do, what you offer in the elevator pitch 30 seconds, right? Super simply. And that's one thing I say to our founders. And, and look, not to say that people don't want to have long in-depth conversations, they do. But if you can't articulate what you can do within that short period of time, how are you expecting somebody else on the other side of that conversation to be able to accept and resonate and kind of digest 
what it is that you're telling them. And one of the things I take our founders when we, we're putting together decks or materials or presentations or strategy on their business, I say, look, when you're so close to the bone on something, you want to include everything. And that's that's natural. That's your nature because you're working on it. But just pick three at the maximum five key messages that you want to get across. Prioritize those messages and then articulate them as simply as possible you can. And remember, if I'm digesting this on the other side, they're the first three or the five things I'm going to read. And in a space of 10 seconds to 30 seconds to a minute, I'm really clearly going to be able to understand what it is that you do. Um, I always say, for example, an investment presentation, wherever you send it around the world, it should not dot every I and cross every T. What it should do is introduce your concept, introduce your vision. But if you get a really successful investment presentation, what you should get is a potential investor on the other side coming back to you and said, you mentioned this, can I ask you about X, Y, and Z? And that shows they're engaged. That shows they've picked up your concept, they've picked up your thing and they're engaged and they're coming back to you to ask more questions about your particular opportunity or your motivation or your strategy uh, around it. So it's not always about telling everybody everything the first go. Um, it's just about kind of breaking that down and, and seeing where it hits, seeing where it resonates. Look, I'm kind of trying to be environmentally conscious, but at the same time, but flights around the world are particularly cheap. So I say, get up, get up and go, like go to those places, go to a conference that you haven't been to before, join online, like join communities, Discord, Slack, whatever it may be, speak to people, have face-to-face -face conversations, you know, even through Zoom like we're doing now. That's the way that you'll pick up and you'll find out where activity is going on more than you will trawling through LinkedIn for 10 hours a day trying to pick up insight and tips, in my opinion, not, not to say that LinkedIn's a terrible platform, but just in my opinion, there's nothing like speaking to people on an individual basis. I love it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why we're building in, in peak, you know, so that people can have those uh, connections, uh, even if they are not able to necessarily go to every conference and, you know, bring people together in a community kind of environment. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Ali. This has been super interesting. Uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you, having you on the platform. Um, I love these conversations. They are uh, really a great opportunity for me to learn and hopefully other people also learn um, through listening. Uh, and uh, where, where can people find you? Uh, are you uh, active on social media? What's the best way? I, I'm unfortunately, I'm not that particularly active on social media, but not really. But our website's mtp.tech. Um, I'm available on LinkedIn. You can find my email address. Like my inbox is open directly at any time. So please feel free to contact me or message me on there. Uh, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, yeah, but 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 just for bandwidth reasons, I don't don't particularly spend a lot of time on, on social media. Awesome, and people can check out your your session uh, coming up on on the platform. Yeah, super looking forward to that, and hope it resonates with people as well. Awesome, Andy. thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ali Karimi. Please be sure to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcast so that you don't miss the future episodes. It will mean the world to me if you leave a review and share the podcast with others who you think might enjoy it.